This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Julie Lamb. Julie is a real estate investor in the Bay Area. She's the co-founder of Good Egg Investments and focuses on raising money for apartment syndications. In this episode, she'll tell us how she got started with raising money with no track record and how she connected with operators to become part of the general partnership. She'll go over the exact steps that you need to take if you want to start raising money and explains what she looks for in a good operator. If you're even remotely interested in raising money, you need to listen to this episode. Enjoy! Thank you very much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are and how you got into real estate investing. Yeah, sure. So my name is Julie Lamb, and I got into real estate investing back in 2009, so about 10 years ago. Uh, and I got into it kind of accidentally. I wasn't actually getting into it per se to be a quote real estate investor. I was just more really doing the traditional narrative of get married and buy a home. That's what people do when they get married. And um, my real estate agent told me, you know, you can either buy this townhome or you can buy a loft. But if you buy this townhome with all of these bedrooms, you can do what we know in the real estate investing world is as house hacking. And so I said, Oh, that's really interesting. I, I we're going to, we're totally going to do that, you know, because that sounds really interesting and let's, you know, try to save some money. We're going to start a family. And that was my introduction to real estate investing was house hacking on my first property in Oakland in California. And uh, we ended up buying a few more properties here in the Bay area around that same time, 2009 and 10. So, you know, little did we know that it was a you know fantastic time for us to get into the real estate market. We're looking at uh, uh, selling those properties in 2013 and uh, 2016. We were looking at exiting those properties, and as we looked to exit them, we were trying to figure out what the highest and best use was going to be for us to, uh, you know, basically grow and accelerate our wealth. And so that's when we started to look at getting into multifamily. And I very quickly realized early on in the multifamily space that there's a lot of work that is required to take down a multifamily apartment building. And so I uh, found out about the opportunity to be a passive investor in a deal first. And that was how I initially started in the multifamily invest investing space. Uh, and then after I was a passive, about half a year later, I started uh, being on the active side, on the general partnership side, and started bringing equity to a general partner sponsors deals. And that was kind of my introduction. This was in 2017 to doing what I do now at my company, Good Egg Investments. Uh, I met my business partner about a year ago at a uh, conference in Denver, and uh, we co-founded Good Egg Investments together. And over the last year and a half or so uh, between uh, Good Egg Investments and, and some of the other money raising I did on my own, we've done about 11 deals in, in an 18 month time period. Um, and so that's, that's my story and how I got into it. Very cool. Can you talk about you know, how you got into the whole money raising part of the business? Because it seems like something very scary for someone to do, especially if you're not in control of the deal. How do you ask someone else to raise money for someone else's deal? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So I got into it because I started out as a passive investor and I, you know, kind of learned the ins and outs and did a lot of the due diligence to do my own deal, uh, you know, in 2016. And it was really through that process, through that vetting process, where I started to understand how the deals work and started to understand from a passive investor standpoint, all of the questions someone would want to ask. So I didn't approach this from the standpoint of, well, I'm going to set out to be an equity rate. It was just more kind of just happened accidentally where I, you know, took the information that I had learned about, um, you know, understanding how the deals work and then talked about that with family and friends. And I kind of, I didn't, it was one of those things, again, I didn't intentionally set out to do. I more just really wanted to share my knowledge and provide value to friends and family and let them know about the investments I was getting into. And then they said, well, the next time you do a deal, let me know. I might be interested in partnering up with you. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I never, I didn't expect that. 
Um, and so I was offered the opportunity to uh, join the journal partnership and bring some equity to a deal. And so I, you know, did what, you know, people do when they start businesses, you start, you get a website up and, you know, you start blogging and educating folks and uh, started to gain a little bit of a following there with family and friends and their interests. Uh, and then I also simultaneously started chiming in in a lot of mothers groups locally here in the Bay Area uh, and just talked a lot about, you know, alternate investing strategies. I think, you know, the traditional, what people traditional traditionally do when they think about real estate investing is they buy their primary home and then they buy, you know, their uh, maybe a rental or two. Um, and but not a lot of people know about the opportunity to invest, um, you know, in a crowdfunded deal that, that, you know, has become more popular in the last couple of years. So, so I guess for your first few deals that you helped raise money, you were probably going to friends and family did you have any outside investors as well uh so on my first deal i think it was just friends and family and then it was the second deal that i did where i then had a little bit of um a quote track record and then i could leverage that first deal that i did and then i took that to you know various places meetups and events that i went to and facebook posts and you know sharing my what i knew and sharing the knowledge that i had and then now i was able to say okay you know i i have investors right and i have already closed one deal behind me and then i think it was on that second deal that i had folks that were just you know people that i didn't uh you know immediately know within my network um prior to starting that yeah makes sense so i guess for the first one you kind of just tell them how well you did on your first passive investment how the whole structure works and then kind of say hey, look this is a good way to you know increase your wealth Right. And it was great because it was a way to, um, you know, gain a little bit of a track record for me, right, without actually having a track record other than having done a deal of my own. Um, but, you know, I think that's a great place for people who are looking to do, uh, you know, what we're doing is to start first with your immediate, uh, you know, network. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't discount your sphere of influence. This is that's right. Yeah. You know, if you're starting out fresh, right, you were a past investor, and you start thinking, hmm, maybe I can start raising money. How do you even approach these sponsors to even allow you to have the opportunity to raise money for them? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, really what you want to do is you want to try to create uh, a business, right? And create a following so that you can show that you would be potentially valuable for someone else who you know is looking for some equity to be brought to their deal and so it's not enough to really just say well i think i could raise money or i think i'm interested in this what does that process look like but you know just going through the motions of creating a website and you know creating a thought leadership platform and uh you know identifying your target audience uh and engaging some investor interest first and then be able to take that to someone and say, hey, you know, this is this is what I've done already. Is there, you know, interest on your part in potentially working together on a deal or something like that? You know, I see. So you have a platform set up, like your website, your blogging, and you say, look, I already have maybe like ten or so verbal commitments that can help you for whatever project you have. Yeah. And then you say, yeah, sure. Next time I have a good deal, you can come in and help me raise equity. Right. And, and that says so much to me. It shows me that they're really committed, right? They've gone through the process of creating a website. They've, you know, thought about what kind of thought leadership platform they're going to have. They, you know, they created a blog, they have videos, they've identified their target audience. They've, uh, you know, engaged investor interest. That person is ready to go. Right. So, you know, when that's very much of what I did when I got into this is, you know, I, I made that commitment and I, did all of these things to show my partner that I was ready and I was committed to, you know, partnering with them on a deal. Is there kind of like a minimum that, that they're looking for? Like if you only come in with, Oh, I help you raise 200 grand. They're like, nah, it's not really worth our time. You know, what kind of a equity raise are they looking for? Yeah. So it varies from operator to operator. I wouldn't say that it's the same for every, you know, every operator, each one is going to have, you know, what's worth it for them. And I think a lot of it is going to be, uh, deal size. That's one thing. And then I think secondly, what their capacity is, they're being the operator for working with how many ever, you know, equity raisers there may be. So in other words, if it's a $2 million raise, 
and they just want to work with one person, well, they're going to work with one person who can bring the whole two million to the table. But if this is a, an operator who doesn't mind working with, you know, maybe 10 different, you know, folks, then, you know, then the minimum would obviously drop. But I think it's from what I've seen in the industry, it's really dependent upon how much, um, how many people the operator wants to deal with. Because if you've got like, you know, 20 equity raisers in the deal, it can be a lot of work, you know, uh, or, whereas if you just have one person who's managing the equity raisers, then it's a lot, you know, less time commitment on their end. But, you know, there's not really a minimum, I would say it's just, you know, on an operator by operator basis. I see. Because I mean, I know for like a, a $10 million raise, it might make sense to have, you know, five raisers or so mm -hmm. for a $1 million raise, maybe just one. I would say that, you know, half a million is probably like the lowest that I've seen, but I do know that there are other, you know, I've seen other situations where it's been less than that too. So it just, like I said, it just depends, but yeah. So how do you go about vetting the sponsors themselves? Yeah. So, and this goes back to, you know, the due diligence that I did when I was trying to find deals to get into of my own. Um, and, you know, really what I was looking for, and I had talked with so many sponsors and what I was looking for was I was looking for a track record. So it doesn't mean that they have to go back to, you know, before 2009. I know there's a lot of investors out there that would love to work with an operator who had been investing since 2009, but it wasn't that, but it wasn't, it was just more that they had a year or two and that they had closed at least, you know, three to six deals to show that they have identified a particular niche and that they're able able to execute and perform on those investments, right? So, you know, I wasn't really looking to partner up with someone who was doing one deal, you know, had only done one deal. I was really looking for a little bit of a track record. Um, you know, any of the sponsors that I talked to, one big indicator for me that I would always look for is how responsive are they to my questions? And in, and in their response, are they answering my question or are they dodging my question? And how much attention to detail is there in their response? And believe it or not, I think that that tells you so much about a person and an operator, someone who's going to be managing the investment and their you know, management style, right? If they don't have attention to detail, they don't respond to you timely, they're not answering your question, it's gonna be a long ride, you know? Um, whereas it, you know, on the opposite side of that, if you email them with a question, it's the response is concise, it's to the point and you know, everything and it may sound funny, but the words are spelled correctly. You'd be really surprised, you know, um, how much of a difference those kinds of things can make. Uh, but you know, those are some of the things I think when you think about markets, I, you know, look for, I looked for an operator who was investing in one market. So I didn't want to invest with someone who was, you know, doing a, you know, a deal in Tennessee and a deal in Florida and a deal in Dallas and Atlanta. I really wanted to partner up with an operator who identified a market and knew that market like the back of their hand, and they're not operating in any other market. Um, you know, are these operators, do they have a full-time job or are they doing, you know, and then they're doing this on the side uh, or is this all they do all day long? Right. I, the preferably it would be that they don't have a job on the side and that this is all they do all day long, that they'll be you know, managing this investment. Um, I think another thing is how conservative are they in their underwriting? So when I'm sent an investment summary, you know, do I see that their underwriting is really aggressive and that they're, you know, at this point in the market cycle, you don't want to see someone underwriting, you know, these huge, you know, rent increases year over year. We're just not at that point in the market cycle, right? So you would want to see 3% or less, you know, um, you know, so that, that speaks to the conservative nature of their underwriting. You would want to see, uh, you know, long-term debt. So what kind of debt and financing, I mean, this is going more into the deal rather than the sponsor. Um, but I I guess more going back to the sponsor would be like transparency. So when you're asking questions, you know, uh, you know, are they, you know, getting to the point and really letting, you know, letting you in on what's going on, or do you feel like they're kind of like skirting the question and things like that? Uh, and I guess the last thing would be, you know, what did that person do in their previous career? You know, were they, was it related to this? Was it not related to this? Preferably, you know, what they're doing now is somehow related to what they do, uh, you know, in real estate investing in some way, I think it's very helpful. I think that goes back to leveraging, you know, folks strengths and, and whatnot. And I think that's really important. So yeah. Do you mind if they are actually in the actual place where the properties are? Or do you care 
you know, they could live in California but operate in Texas? Or do you want them to be based in Texas? I think that there needs to be some connection to the market that they're investing in. So even let's say even if they didn't live there, but they grew up there and they know that market like the back of their hand, that would be, you know, for me personally, um, that would be comfortable. Uh, ideally, I would say if the person lived in the market, it, it's probably better. Um, but I wouldn't say that that's a deal breaker. Um, I would say that, you know, you can achieve that same goal by having, uh, you know, regional management boots on the ground. You have your property managers. So long as you live close enough to, you know, fly over to the investment uh, in that market, I think that it's okay. So, you know, if someone's in California and they own a property that's in Jacksonville, Florida, and, you know, it's, that's, it's a long flight, you know, it's hard to get to. It's not how often are they going to go back and forth. So, yeah. I don't know, not a deal breaker, but. What are your deal breakers? Um, I think really it's the track record. So lack of a track record. I, I'm just not at this point in the market cycle. You know, if you don't, if this is your first deal, I, I'm just not in a position to partner up with you, even as a passive. Um, I think, uh, what else? Um, I think that and, and the ability to conservatively underwrite. So if I see their investment summary and it's super aggressive, no, not going to do it. You know, I think at this point in the market cycle, you just have to be very aware of where we are and you have to make sure that everything that you're doing is, um, you know, is uh, conservative. I think that's my opinion, just because I think that I think something's coming in the next 12 to 12 to 24 months, but who knows, right? I mean, I, I remember saying this in 2016, that something was going to happen in the next 12 months. And here we are in 2019 with no signs of slowing down, right? So I, who knows? So let's talk about the deal itself. What do you look for in an actual deal? Yeah, so I would say that I'm looking for the so the number one thing that I look for when I think about investing in a deal is, and this is specific to multifamily apartments, I want to invest in a market that has strong job growth and strong population growth. So I think those are the two like fundamental things you you look for. And if, you know, those if that we're not investing in a market that has those things, then to me it's potentially risky. Again, going back to where are we in the market cycle? You want to make sure that you're hedging any potential risk of decrease in occupancy. Uh, you know, job diversity is there, you know, one industry that makes up you know, the entire uh, economic, you know, uh, the job force there, or, or there are a number of different industries, right? So you want to make, and if there are a number of different ones, you want to make sure that no one uh, industry makes up more than, you know, 20%, let's say, of the overall industry. And that, again, is to hedge any kind of recession. If, you know, let's say there was a tech recession, and, you know, you're investing in an area that has nothing but tech companies there, like, you know, the Bay Area or Austin, or, you know, one of those types of areas, you, you want want to look for that job diversity. So, uh, oh, cash flow. So that's another thing that you want to look for, uh, or that I look for when I look at a deal is I look for cash flow from day one. So if I've, you know, and presented a deal and I have been where it's, uh, they say, you know, uh, you won't receive the first distribution until 12 months. Right. And what that means, the reason you won't receive a distribution is because there's not enough cash flow in the deal to start paying the investor until 12 months. And that's because it's probably a pretty big reposition. And so they have to go in and make all of these renovations in order to get market rents up to where they need it to be to start paying you. And so again, that goes back to, you know, being very risky. So I want to make sure that I receive a distribution and preferably at an 8% preferred return, you know, 30 to 60 days after closing, because that tells me that the strength of the deal is enough from a cash flow perspective to start paying me the investor from day one. Um, and when you think about a potential recession happening, you want to make sure that, you know, that cash flow is there because then you have the ability to absorb any kind of decrease in occupancy or a drop in rents and still maintain, you know, the property and not, you know, have to be foreclosed on or whatnot, right? So you want, so usually the preferred returns are 8%, right? And you're expecting the deal to have that complete full 8% year one. Yes, okay. that's right.
Yeah, because I think, in my opinion, any deal that doesn't have that in day one, it's it's potentially going to be a little bit of a riskier deal, not as strong, right? Because the cash flow isn't there to pay out. Um, I would say the other thing is that you want to make sure that, and this isn't a deal breaker, but you want to make sure, if possible, that there's long-term debt on the property. So, you know, if it's a five-year projected hold, you want to see that there's a you know, at least more than five years, like, you know, seven year term, 10 year term, greater if possible, because what you don't want to happen is that you hit some kind of recession in year five. And let's say it's a five year projected hold five year term on the loan. And then you're forced to sell at a time when the value in the property isn't there, right? It's like a, it's a bad recipe. So, but it's not necessarily a deal breaker. I have seen some deals that are structured with like a, you know, interest only for a certain period with, you know, a couple of years extension after that. Uh, You know, I just think it's a little bit riskier because, you know, if you're in year two or three and you want to refi out and you can't, uh, you know, then at least you have a few more years cushion to wait, you know, ride anything out. But it, what happens in that second year, I mean, in that fourth year and fifth year, uh, if, you know, you can't refi out, you'll be forced to sell. So long-term debt. Uh, and the third thing would be CapEx reserves. So whenever I look at a deal, I want to make sure that the operator has raised enough capital prior to closing. So I don't want to see that they're, you know, they need five million to, you know, do the CapEx uh, repairs, but they're planning on getting that money after closing. I want to know that we have that money sitting in the bank account, uh, ready and waiting for us to execute, you know, at closing, because if we were to hit a recession or have some kind of a correction, then money, uh, you know, as we all know, can get very expensive, right? So if you're then trying to chase money to implement these capital expenditure repairs, it's a quick downward spiral, right? Water heaters go, roofs go, you can't get the money because it's too expensive. You didn't plan for that. Uh, so I would say that those are, you know, the, the three big things, the cash flow, long-term debt, and then the CapEx reserves that you want to make sure is in place, uh, you know, when, you, when you're looking at any kind of a deal. So are your partners acquiring the properties with long-term debt right away, or are they doing some kind of, you know, two-year bridge loan? do whatever value adding you do. And then, so it depends deal to deal, not even operator to operator. It's deal to deal. Um, you know, some of the deals we've done do have longer term debt. Um, and, but there are others that don't and that have, you know, the, the bridge loan. And I would say traditionally you're going to see like a two or three year bridge and then, you know, a couple of years extension after that. So it's not a deal breaker in my opinion. Um, I've invested in deals that have that structure, it's just something to be aware of. And if possible, you'd want to get that longer term debt. Um, I think as long as you chat with the operator and you say, hey, what's the plan for this property, right? I mean, if we hit some kind of a recession, what are we going to do? As long as it's top of mind for them and they're aware that they need to get in and, and refi out either into a new loan or exit the deal, as long as that's top of mind for them in year two or three, then you have a couple of years if we're in a recession at that time that they consider to do that to figure out what you're going to do, you know? So I think a lot of it, um, you know, it's just about communication and making sure that you, you know, are having and and like I said earlier is that sponsor operator being responsive to your questions you know and so uh you know those are the kinds of uh questions you want to ask and then you know see how they respond and that kind of thing so not a deal breaker but you know good to have if possible and about the deal itself are you looking for a certain cap rate IRR yeah so I would say that anything anything under a 15 percent IRR uh, you know, probably isn't going to be that attractive to me. And the only reason is because I'm still seeing deals out there that are still, you know, at the 18% IRR. So when I see a deal that's a little bit less, it could indicate that it's less risky. But as long as I can get the highest return for the least amount of risk, then I'm going to chase whatever deal that is, right? So um, if I can find that, then I'm going to stick with that. So if it's 15%, why would I do 15% when I can get 18% here with someone who has a strong track record and, you know, has identified a niche and they're just closing deal after deal and project, you know, hitting returns and all that kind of stuff. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to do the 18%. Right. So um, I would say 18% IRR is still something I'm seeing annual 20% returns. I like to see, so I personally 
like to invest in deals that have that 8% preferred return. Um, I know that there are other operators out there who do the 80-20 split, and it could potentially be a greater return to me as the investor, but I like the 8% preferred return as a passive because that ensures that I'm going to get paid first before the journal partnership takes anything, right? So uh, that's another thing that I that I look for. And that's 18%. Uh, on the investment side, right? Or is that the whole deal? Yeah, as a passive. That's actually very impressive that there are operators out there in this market who can still acquire property, turn around and make 18%. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the reason, I think the only way that they're able to find those deals and the only way anyone will be able to find those kinds of deals at this point in the market cycle really is by having uh, either a great broker relationship where that broker is bringing them pocket listings or they're, they have a connection with someone who's just sitting there cold calling mom and pop owners, um, you know, and, and they're able to access these these really great off market deals. And so, you know, anything on market, I think, you know, they're good deals. But I think the only way you're going to find these like home run deals with an 18, 20 percent IRR, um, you know, with 8 percent preferred return and all that kind of stuff where they're paying out, you know, day one is really from having those good broker relationships and off market deals. Yeah. Yeah, buying at a steep discount. Mm -hmm, right. Now, can you walk us through like the entire process of how raising money works, starting from like what's the order of things that do things go? Do you get a verbal commitment first? Do you get a deal first? Do you find operator first? Or how does it all work? So we are so the work that we do is always ongoing and and I'll explain what I mean by that. But really what we're doing, this goes back to what we were saying earlier is how does somebody get into this? Really, you know, how someone gets into this is by providing value first, right? And so that's really what we're always looking to do first is we're always looking to add value for people. And we're looking to do that by educating them, whether it's through blog posts or videos or whatnot. And then once people you know, find us and they read up on our website and they learn a little bit more about what we're doing, then they go through a funnel. And we've created this funnel. This is something that Annie and I set up. Annie is my business partner that we set up, um, you know, so that the educational component is kind of like a lead magnet, if you will, right? And then they funnel down through, they sign up for our, what we call investor club. And once they sign up for our investor club, they receive a series of automated emails and then and more education. Here, thank you for joining. Here's, you know, if you haven't read these blog posts, here's, here are some things you should consider, uh, you know, and then it's schedule a call with me, with Julie. And then, you know, as you I'm sure know, you know, in order for us to work with investors, we have to have a, a prior, you know, pre-existing relationship with them. And so that conversation is required. And so they'll be prompted to set up a call. I use Meeting Bird. Um, that's an app that I use to schedule. And it's great because they move through that funnel and people end up on my on my calendar without me having to do very much work. After we get on the phone and we have a conversation and I understand whether our investments are appropriate or not for them, uh, then we, uh, then they're officially in our investor club. And then we, anytime we have a new opportunity, we email the opportunity out to everyone who we have that pre-existing relationship with. And then once in that email announcing the new opportunity, there's an option to put in what we call a soft reservation. And what that does is it allows investors to kind of hold a spot in their deal. It doesn't guarantee them a spot, but it allows them to hold a spot in the deal. It's kind of like expressing interest. Uh, and then after that, we send out the investment summary. We hold a conference call. And then that's really like the two pieces of information that they get uh, to really do their due diligence and assess if it's an opportunity they want to get into or not. And then, then after that, a couple of weeks later, we look for firm commitments. So we reach back out to everyone on the soft reservation list and we say, okay, we're you know looking to firm up our commitments. And you know, there are inevitably a few that drop out, and then it you know opens up some space for new investors. Uh, and then they sign the legal documents, they fund, and then that's pretty much it. They get an email on the day that we close, letting them know that we've closed um, on the deal. And then they get an update every month, uh, letting them know where we're at with our occupancy and then where we're at with our um, whether we're meeting or exceeding our projected rental income. So, you know, if we projected a one hundred and fifty dollar rent bump, are we meeting that or are we exceeding that? Uh, 
and then we just talk about stuff that's happening in the submarket, if anything, and where we are with the renovations and things like that. And usually, like I said, we try to start distributions anywhere from as soon as I'd say like 60 days after closing uh, to one of the, one of the deals we did six months uh, after closing was when it started. So. Like I said before, I wouldn't do a deal. We wouldn't partner with an operator that proposed anything longer than that. To us, that's kind of the max. But yeah, that's that's kind of start to finish how we you know find investors, and the, that's kind of the process they move through, and then you know getting to the point of actually investing in a deal. So we go backwards in time. You send a newsletter once a month. Since you guys aren't like the operators, right? Do the operators send the whole thing out, or does it go through your channel? Like, does Good Egg Investments send out that newsletter to those investors? Or is it that operator that sends the email out? Uh, no, it's Good Egg Investments. Because I guess, like, they're your people, so you take care of them now. Correct. Yep. And that's part of, you know, what we do when I talk about investor relations. That's what we do, right? Is we continue to keep the investors updated about the investment. And we also, you know, triage any questions that come up and things like that. I mean, that's one of the big roles that Good Egg has in the co-syndication of the deals we do. And if you talk about a timeline, so I'm guessing the new opportunity starts when a general partner that you have already have a prearranged, like, look, I'm going to bring in, let's say maybe a million dollars to your next raise. Uh, let me know if you have a new deal. And then let's say two weeks later, he says, okay, I have a new deal. Help me raise money. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then right there, you send your email out to your, to your list mm -hmm. and ask for soft reservations. Mm -hmm. And how long do you wait between that time and that firm commitment time? So I would say it's usually about three weeks or so. Um, and that's just more of a function of, you know, when do we have the conference call completed? Usually from the time we announce a new opportunity, usually the investment summary is already available at that point we announce it. Um, but then the conference call usually happens within a week after announcing that. And then usually about, you know, two weeks after that, we, you know, follow up and look for firm commitment. So I would say it's like a two to three week window after making the initial announcement. So the conference call is like a, a webinar, right? You just have right. And do you know, like, does anything make more of a difference? Like the email makes more of a difference, the webinar makes more of a difference or? Uh, in terms of getting the firm commitments, mm -hmm. I would say that it, the conference call or slash webinar is a critical component to getting investor firm commitments because it gives the investors a chance to hear your voice talking about the deal. Uh, and it also gives you an opportunity to shed some more light on, you know, the submarket that you're investing in and also the deal itself and to talk a little bit more about yourself. And so I would say that the, the webinar um, and if you did it live and you had a Q&A, it's it's very helpful because then it gives investors the chance to listen to other people asking questions. So it's not even so much valuable that they have the opportunity to ask questions. It's the ability for other investors to hear other folks asking questions they may not have known to ask. And that's the feedback that we've gotten from our investors. So, um, and the investment summary itself, the, the PDF document that we hand out, uh, I would say is critical as well. I mean, you can't, if anyone tries to ask you to invest in a deal and there's no investment summary, be wary. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Can we talk about the funnel itself out of however many viewers you have, how many actually go to your subscriber list, which goes down to you know, like the, the conference call and dot, 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 dot. Yeah, so I, I don't have the numbers, unfortunately. It's something that we're working on in terms of how many people are actually coming to our site and then like signing up for the investor club and then actually investing. Sure. Uh, but you know, I would say we probably have I want to say maybe 10 investor club signups a week. Wow. Um, they're qualified investors now, not, you know, just anyone, but like qualified accredited investors with, you know, a certain level of sophistication in terms of their background. Um, and then, you know, out of all of those folks, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, on any given deal, we probably have uh, 15 to 20 investors uh, on any given deal. And I would say that uh, about 70% of those investors are repeat investors and 30% are new. So that kind of gives you an idea too, like how many people are, you know, new versus repeat. And I think really that's happening because 
a lot of the investors that have been in the deals previously have, you know, started to receive their distributions. They like working with us. They like the deals. And so they just keep on investing. And then they start telling their friends too. So it's like a... Yeah. yeah. And so now that we've been in business for, for a while, we're definitely starting to see the residual effects of that where folks, you know, oh, I heard about you from a coworker or one of your investors or whatever. So we're, we're at the point now... Uh, you know, where we're getting more of that, where it's obviously in the beginning, we didn't have that. So, you know, no one was really referring anyone. So, but yeah, now we're getting to that point too. So it's good. Well, yeah, you guys now are talking on conferences. I see your articles on Forbes. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Can we talk about what kind of software you guys use? Because all these automated stuff, there's no way you guys are doing it by yourselves. So. Yeah. Yeah. So we use, so like I mentioned for, to set up calls, we're using Meeting Bird. Um, and that's a Bay Area company. Um, I think it is a group that and I, I looked at a number of different like Calendly and uh, a number of different ones. But Meeting Bird for me has been the one that looks the nicest and also functions the best. And so it's kind of the best of both worlds and it's free um, and it works with, uh, you know, any, any most of the platforms we use. So that's what I use to set that up. Um, and what I like about that one is, you, and I'm sure you could do this with the other ones, but you can set up different call links. So if it's a networking call that I had to set up, I can have one calendar for that that has specified days and times that I want to allow networking calls to occur. And then if it's like an investor call, my calendar is much more wider because I want to I want to give our investors more opportunities to talk with me. Um, but I like that being able to put different links in different places. Um, and uh, and then active campaign is what we use for the funnel. Uh, and I, I am not the expert. Annie is my business partner is actually the expert on active campaigns. She used to do, uh, she has a background in video game design. So she's really good with setting up all the funnels and automations and things like that. I, I just tell her what I need and she's very great about helping me set that up so that the investor calls get on my calendar and things like that. Um, uh, but active campaign works really well with a number of different apps uh, for instance, one thing that's been really valuable is when we set up the soft reserves uh, in the campaign that we send out, there'll be a link. So you can click a button, soft reserve button, that'll link to a Google Sheets document. And then that way, you know, and then, but it, but it links to a website, a web page that people fill out information. So my name is John Doe. I want to invest $50,000. I am accredited. Uh, I'm going to use my self-directed IRA. And all of those fields auto-populate into a Google Sheets document. And so it's great because I don't need to manually enter the information in Google Sheets. And then I can use that document to work with our co-sponsor, you know, and it's very easy, you know. So there's a lot of automations that Active Campaign can do uh, and a lot of other programs that it can work with. Um, so that's, we love, I can't say enough about active campaign, highly recommended, cost efficient, uh, and definitely worth all the time that it saves us and the automations that it enables, um, it, it, you know, allows you to set up. Uh, and the other big thing that we use pretty frequently is Slack. So I don't know if you know, are familiar with that app or use it very often, but, um, we were not using that before uh, and it's been you know wonderful to use it because one of the best things that I love about it is that you can set up all these different channels to talk about different things so we have a channel for every deal that we've set up we have a channel for marketing we have a channel for social media we have a channel for SEO and then the best thing about that is that anyone that we partner with uh, so anyone that we work with like we have a social media, girl who helps us with our social media postings, she can, we can add her to that channel so long as she's on Slack and she will only have access to that channel, not the rest of them. Uh, and the three of us, Annie and myself and the social media girl can correspond within that channel to discuss anything social media related. Um, and it's just a great way to, to talk about things because you don't, you know, when I send a message to, to Annie in the, you know, uh, a certain channel, she already knows what deal I'm talking about. So she's not like, what deal is this again? Or where was this? And, and then going back to the conversations, it's like, oh, that conversation we had about the Huntsville deal. So I go to the Huntsville channel and there's all of our conversations about that deal. So highly recommend Slack um, as well. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's pretty much what we use. We use uh, Google 
uh, Drive to store all of our stuff. So, you know, Google Drive, Google Docs and Sheets. Annie and I work together, um, you know, we share documents there and we're able to link documents in active campaign to thing, you know, documents that are kept on the, the drive uh, that we make public and whatnot. So that's a, a good uh, way that we were able to use that. But yeah, I would say those are the, pr- the primary ones. Do you have like a CRM software or is active campaign doing that all for you? Yeah. So active campaign is pretty much that as well. It's the, it's the CRM. Um, so we're able to uh, you know, that's another great thing is anyone who signs up on our website, you know, and, f- fills out those fields, then it automatically populates as a contact in active campaign with all of the pertinent information. And then when I have my call with them, I just go into active campaign and I, you know, open up that, that, uh, that contact. And then I'm able to add notes in there as well. Uh, and you can also see like every kind of interaction that that uh, person has had in terms of engagement with your uh, either your website or your emails, and so it's 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 I, I love it. I love Active Campaign. It's great and pretty easy to use as well. So that's how you can track who actually did the sauce reservation. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you know it's you and Annie, and also you have a social media person. Who else is on your team? Yeah. So we have uh, the social media uh, person, and then we also have an SEO person uh that we've been working with uh to help us you know get higher ranked and help uh, optimize our site for seo stronger seo uh so we have that guy on our team and then we recently partnered up with a group who's going to help us with our underwriting and our asset management because one of the things that we're looking to do this year is to be the lead sponsor so in the past all we've been is kind of the co-sponsor and this year we're looking to be the lead sponsor and so we've recently brought in-house um an underwriter who has a background uh, working with family offices, particularly in the B-class space that we that we're in. Um, and then an asset manager who used to do a lot of due diligence asset management over at uh, Ernst & Young. And so uh, is your SEO person and your Upwork person, are they local or are they all like from Upwork or something like that? Right. Yep. I think it is. It's from FreeUp, I think. And, and I think the reason that we used FreeUp was because I think that one is, it's like the best of the best sort of, uh, that's Annie. <laughs> Annie handles all of that. So I think that's what mentioned. Yeah. Cool. So my next question yeah. is, you know, what's next for you guys? You mentioned that you want to get more into the general partnership operator side. So, you know, talk about that. You're here in California. How are you going to do deals out of state? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that we, that's obviously one of the things that I mentioned earlier, it's not necessarily a deal breaker. Um, but, you know, we now have, I want to say close to eight deals uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. So I know that market fairly well. Uh, I know the the areas that we've already invested in. Um, and so we are looking to potentially partner with a partner who's local to the area and who lives there, because just to help us you know, there's a lot that needs to happen in terms of the early stages and vetting the, the sub-market that we're in. As you know, real estate's very block by block. And so we would potentially bring in another partner uh, who would potentially help us with some of the equity raise, depending on the size of the deal. That's a local boots on the ground person. Very cool. And you said you have an Ernst & Young asset manager. What is his role as the asset manager? Yeah, so he would primarily be the one who works very closely with the property managers and managers that are who are the boots on the ground. Uh, and they would work with them to ensure that any renovations that we're doing are being done timely to make sure that all of our expenses are being kept under control, uh, you know, and, and just sort of sure that uh, the investment and managing the asset is really performing as it should be in terms of, you know, making sure that the bottom line is where it needs to be to meet investor projected returns and things like that. So pretty important role. Do you have any advice for any new investors? Yeah, um, I would say really focus on doing your due diligence. Uh, You know, whether you're looking to be an active investor or a passive investor, do your due diligence, network a ton, ask around about people. Uh, You know, you'll thank yourself later um, for that work that you put in. 
you'd be surprised what you can learn just by networking with folks. Um, I would say when I was first getting into real estate investing more seriously, that was one of the things that I feel like helped me a lot was just networking because you have the opportunity to talk with so many different people. And it's kind of like your you know mind becomes like a library of different, you know, of information that you've gathered over time. So I think that's really um, helpful to, uh, you know, network and, and do your due diligence on the, you know, whoever it is that you're partnering up with, even as an active or a passive, make sure you know the people because a deal is a deal. I mean, you know, you can take a good deal and it can go south really quick if you don't have the right partners and, and vice versa. So I think it's really important to make sure you know who you're working with. And what about any failures? Have you seen any common failures? Yeah, I would say that, you know, it's really people who are investing with folks. And this is what I've seen is invest people who are investing with folks who seem to be you know, or who are saying or positioning themselves within the real estate investing, uh, you know, realm as experts, right? They have, uh, you know, these courses and they're these like, you know, investing gurus. And I've talked sadly with a number of, um, and that's not to say that all of them are bad because there are a number of them out there that are really great. Um, but I just think it, again, it goes back to doing your due diligence, but I have heard a few stories of folks not getting their potentially not getting their investment back. And these are with folks who are out there, you know, positioning themselves as like experts in the field. And, you know, little do they know, I guess it's maybe just a matter of time, but, you know, again, it just, you know, make sure that you know who you're working with. Makes sense. And let's say there's someone who's new. Mm -hmm. What are some actionable steps that they could do starting today to end up doing what you do in the very near future? Yeah, yeah. I love this question. I get asked this question a lot. Um, and, you know, it's it's really not too difficult of a concept. It's actually pretty simple. Um, you know, it's going, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier too, but it's, you know, create a brand, get a website up, it costs 20 bucks, you know, for Squarespace. I think I was paying 20 bucks a month or maybe less than that. And I am not technical at all. I am really terrible with websites and email and all that kind of stuff. I'm just not a tech person, but I was able to get my website up and running in probably three weeks, you know, with go get a picture taken, go get a professional photo taken of yourself, put it on a website, uh, you know, create a thought leadership platform, whether that be blogging or videos, speak at local uh, RIAs or meetups, um, you know, find places where you can add value and, you know, create that thought leadership platform, uh, identify a target audience. I think this is super important. I think this is something that a lot of people overlook and they just think I'm going to go out there and fish in the whole pond and see whoever I can get, you know, but I think it's very wise to identify a particular niche. Like for me, I'm a mom, I have three young kids. And so that's my target audience is I want to help other moms who have children as well, you know? Uh, and so I think when you're able to be, uh, you know, as I've heard other people say, identify your avatar and, you know, whenever everything that you do should speak to that avatar. Right. And so that goes to, uh, you know, identifying your target audience. Uh, I would say, you know, start to engage investor interest by, you know, asking investors, as you get to know them and have conversations with them, hey, if I have a deal coming down the pipeline in the next few months, would it be something that you're interested in if it had all of these things? And sort of lay the framework out, you know, and have that framework be something that you would look for in a deal. So like I said, I look for, you know, cash flow day one, long-term debt, 8% preferred return. And then your job would then be to go find an operator who has a deal that's set up like that, right? So if you've then, now you have the investors to say, yes, if you had a deal that had an 8% preferred return, cash flow day one, et cetera, et cetera, now your job is to go find an operator who can give that to your investors, right? Um, and then, you know, and then that way, now you can approach that operator and say, hey, look, I've got my website up. I, you know, how I speak at local RIAs. I've had many, you know, numerous investor conversations. That operator is going to be a hundred times more likely to want to work with you than if you just approach them, no website, no thought leadership platform, no target audience. And you just said, Hey, I'm thinking about raising some equity. And you know, what do you, do you want to partner up on a deal? You know, do you want to bring me on on a deal? That, that operator is likely going to say, why don't you start there first? And then we'll talk, you know, later once you get that going. So I would say, you know, if you can get all that going, and it wouldn't take you that long. I would say probably, you know, two months maybe to start getting all of those things going. Uh, you, you know, you'll start seeing some traction after that for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then do you contact those operators? Like, how did you do it? Cold call, random emails? 
No, no. So the operator that we work with primarily uh, with on about like 85% of the deals we've done is actually the same operator that I partnered up with on as a passive. And they actually presented the opportunity to me. And so it wasn't that I had to ask them. And then moving forward, we actually only work with three operators in the multifamily space. And the other two are people that we already had established a relationship with. So we get approached pretty frequently to partner on deals and bring equity, but it's just not that easy. You know, it's like with anything in real estate, it's all about the relationships. And so, um, you know, it's not just like, well, you have a deal, great, bring it, you know, bring it down and we'll, we'll send it out to our investors and hope and pray that it goes right and see what happens, you know? So it's kind of a a long process. Um, but I would say if somebody approached me and had all of those things done, uh, I would say, yeah, let's, let's talk, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah. So, all right. Very detailed answer. I like it. I'm, yeah. I'm sure anyone who's really interested in it can just listen to exactly what you just said <laughs> and do it. It's not yeah. that hard, right? Yeah. That's the hardest part, I think, is actually just doing it. You know, I think a lot of people get stuck and say, well, what if no one wants to invest with me? And what if this and what if that and all these, you know, what ifs and obstacles. And so uh, I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan. So if, you know, go out. <laughs> go out there and uh you know read awaken the giant within and uh you know go out there and and uh, have the right mindset to to get where you're trying to go you know do you have any final words that you'd like to say to anybody i guess it would just be that if you're thinking about getting into equity raising or thinking about getting into the multifamily space the one thing that i would highly recommend is be persistent because there's going to be a lot of things that come up Uh, you know, a lot of obstacles that are going to come up that are going to make you think twice about this. And so, uh, you know, be persistent. But I think more importantly, first, maybe find your why, you know, and figure out why you're doing this, because that's what's going to drive your persistence. And if you're persistent, you're going to, you know, be able to do big things in this space. So, yeah. Do you mind if we ask you what's your why? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my, it's easy. My kids, my family, that's, that's pretty much it. I, you know, once you have kids, it's like nothing else in the whole world. It's the best job I get to do and I love it. And uh, there's just nothing I wouldn't do for my kids and everything that I do in my business and my passive investing is also that I can spend more time with, with my family. So, yeah. I don't have that yet, but maybe in the future I'll pull the same way. You will. You will. When you get there, you'll think back and you'll you'll remember what I said and you'll think, oh my gosh, she was totally right. Yeah. Nice. So how can people yeah. get in contact with you? Yep. So they can email me at Julie at goodegginvestments.com and they can also head to our website and check out. We have a lot of free uh, stuff on there, videos and blog posts at goodegginvestments.com. Yeah, definitely check out that website. I've been there many times and it's, it's one of the most beautiful websites uh, in the real estate space, you know, most of the web- real estate investment websites are all kind of old and yeah, yeah, your guys definitely. Yeah. I can't take all the credit. That's Annie, my business partner. She's, she's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, she's great. Awesome. Well, thank you yeah. very much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for giving me all this wonderful information. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. No problem. Thanks. Thanks. Here are some of the key takeaways I got from speaking with Julie. Learn how to properly underwrite so that you can identify if a deal is good or not. Start speaking with friends and family to see if they would be interested in investing if you happen to find a deal that fits a certain criteria. Create a thought leadership platform to build credibility. So create a website, write a blog, create videos, and show that you're committed. Be persistent, and you'll get there someday soon. Thanks, and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.